Our text this morning is from Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9. You'll find the passage on page 8 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that, that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, at the Oak of Morai. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on his west and I on his east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going to the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. You may be seated. We're moving into a three-part mini-series as we journey through Genesis uh, on Abraham. And so uh, we begin uh, with Genesis 12 today. Before we look at these nine verses and apply them to our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for every part of this service this morning. The words of encouragement from our elder, one of our elders, John Tyler, but enjoying worship with you, not being an obligation. The songs we've sung that have matched so well, thus far with the things that have been said. And Lord, I pray that you would just continue that harmony through this sermon, the Lord's Supper. and the last song that we sing together, I pray that you would unify us in our hearts, speak to us by your Holy Spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Help us to see that you are God, that Jesus Christ is Savior, and the Spirit is our very empowered life. I pray that we can see these things from this passage this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, so far in Genesis, so Genesis 1 through 11, um, we've been talking about prehistory. It's very difficult to know exactly when these events are happening in the timeline of the world. Um, but these events also have a lot to do with uh, the history of the whole world. And so we have these events, these broad events recorded. Uh, not all the events of prehistory are in there, but these events that are pointing us in a direction of God saving his people from what happened in the Garden of Eden. Here in Genesis 12, as we begin talking about Abram, later to become Abraham, uh, the story narrows considerably. It narrows considerably. And in fact, we are entering recorded history. So the events beginning in Genesis 12, we can very uh, almost easily uh, pinpoint them with, with, with fa uh, fair uh, 
uh, confidence in their accuracy on the timeline of history. But we're going to see today is God is narrowing his, the scope of his salvation. He's going to end up saving all of his people, but he's going to do this beginning now by choosing one man through which to accomplish his plan. God makes a choice. God chooses one man. In verse 1, we see this. Now the Lord said to Abram, he didn't say it to anyone else. The things he's saying are for Abram. He's asking Abram to do some things, and he's choosing Abram for this next part, the next phase of his plan to save his people. And so before we really get into what's happening in the story, we have to understand that God, God operates on purpose. God operates on purpose. God created, we've seen this so far, God created Adam and Eve, not anybody else. He gave them purpose. He gave them something to do. He then blessed their son, Seth, no one else. He chose Noah and his family, no one else. He blessed the line of Shem, not the other two brothers. And narrower still, God chooses Abram, one person. It's not the last time we'll see in scripture, God using one man to save the many. But we're going to hear from this, what we should hear from this is that God operates deliberately with clear action. And so we have this God, this all-knowing God, all-loving God, all-powerful God. And I want to say this morning, and what we know to be true from the scriptures is he cannot act any other way, but deliberately. God chooses, God makes choices, God manages, he operates, he does his will. And, And the world, humankind, Many of us, probably all of us in some way, we don't like this idea. We hate it. Why? Because it brings about the prospect that, that we don't have a say in the outcome. And that's sometimes hard to palate. We don't like that idea that, that, that God's controlling everything. More terrifying than that, though, is a God who knows all, loves all, is almighty, and he isn't acting deliberately. He doesn't have his hand on the keel of history. That's terrifying. And so God is acting in character. He is choosing. He's making a choice. He's, making a, he's taking an action to save his people. Now, more surprising than the choice itself um, <clears throat> is the fact that he chooses Abram. Now, look at the rest of verses 1 through 3. God is not choosing Abram because of Abram. He's choosing Abram because He chooses Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The choice of Abram is simply God's will. It's not about Abram's behavior. We'll see this in just a moment. But the language here of of God's promise and command to Abram shows us that it's all about him. God's making the choice, a choice that will result in the blessing of the whole world. And so where are we going with this idea? First of all, let's praise God. We should praise God, not question him, but praise him that he is deliberate and purposeful and makes eternal choices. God does that, praise his name. But again, more surprising than God choosing is whom he chose. This man's name is Abram, which means 
exalted father. It's ironic. He marries a woman named Sarai, who the scripture makes sure we know in in chapter 11 that she is barren. Later, he'll become Abraham, the father of many. I won't sing the song. Um, But Abram, who is this guy? He lives in Ur of the Chaldeans, that is modern day Iraq near the Euphrates River. He is not a Noah figure. Why did God choose Noah? They tell us in the, in the passage of, about Noah. God chose Noah because comparatively his righteousness was greater than everyone else's. Abram, you might be surprised to learn, is a pagan. He does not worship Yahweh. Let me lay this out for you. Joshua 24.2, Joshua himself says that Abram and his family worshiped other gods. Who are these other gods? Uh, Ur and Haran, which we'll read about in this passage, are both famous for worshiping the the moon god. His name is Sin, no relation to Sin, but it's spelled the same, S-I-N. Other evidence, Terah, the, the, the father of Abram, his name means moon. Sarai, his wife, is the same name as the the, the moon god's wife. His sister-in-law, Milcah, M-I-L-C-A-H, is the name of the daughter of the moon god. So here's, here's the deal. Abram is not this faithful worshiper who has earned this choice. It's not because of Abram. He's a pagan. And God calls him, chooses him anyway. In the life of Abram, there's actually two calls that we know of. The call we have here is a reminder, a gentle reminder by God. The first call, we're gonna, we can jump to Acts 7, the, the sermon by Stephen. He says that God called Abram in Ur. And so there's this double departures. There's the first one in the mid-1900s before Christ where, where Abram and his family, his father, they all start their way toward Canaan. They leave Ur. They end up settling in Haram. We don't know exactly why, but the caravan stalls out. He never quite makes it to Canaan. And so the the passage we have here, what we just read in verses one through three, is God giving Abram a gentle reminder, keep moving. The journey isn't over. I love this detail. It's very subtle. It's very subtle, but it's important. As we apply this scripture to our lives, this idea that Abram's obedience wasn't complete all the way at first is important for us. He obeyed in what looks like stages, or he obeyed partially or temporarily, whatever you want to label it as. We don't know, again, what happened. We know that Terah, his father, died. Maybe he got sick in Haran, and that's where things settled out. But regardless, Abram upon the first hearing of this command from an unknown God, did not obey, did not finish the quest perfectly or completely. And his lack of follow-through did not negate the promise of God. So here we have a patient reminder. Abraham has stopped in Haran. He has not finished his journey. And what does God say? He says, don't forget, let's keep moving. And what's his response? He resumed, he continued his obedience. To his credit, he obeys. Look at verses four and five. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, you see. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, the people they had acquired, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. We'll stop there. Again, This God that is not the God he worships gives him a vision, gives him a word. He obeys it the first time. They doesn't quite finish it. 
this God, Yahweh, reminds him again gently, and he continues in his obedience. He responds in faith. This is a big move. He's pulling up his entire encampment and moving on to unknown territories. He continues, eventually, the sacrificial journey that God has set him on. What happens as he moves on? We go to verse, the end of verse 5 into 7. When they came to the land of Canaan, finally, Abram, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land, a restatement of the promise. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Here we have Abram's conversion. <laughs> we're seeing Abram switch from worshiping the moon god, being, being a pagan, to now, as we're going to see later, exclusively worshiping Yahweh. This is a result of God appearing to him, commanding him. And so now we see in verses 8 and 9, he is a worshiper exclusively of Yahweh. <clears throat> from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And here's the, the words, and called upon the name of the Lord. That's an exclusive worship. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So that's the story. Abram, first call in Ur, begins his journey, stalls out in Haran. Second, patient call, told, continue your journey. In faith, he responds and continues. What do we know? His character wasn't especially remarkable. He was a pagan. We're going to see later, he's, later he's, a, he's a liar. He's an opportunist. He continues that even after his conversion. His status in life isn't especially breathtaking. He is a man who's married a woman who is barren. He's a nomadic shepherd. His obedience even after hearing from God comes and starts and stops. But what do we know? Abram becomes a main character in the Christian faith. What do we know about these choices, these responses to God's call? We know that his trusting response becomes foundational to the Christian faith. In Hebrews 11, we call it the hall of faith. He's marked there. It says this, the author says, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, touting his faith. Romans 4 Paul uses, upholds Abram as a model of faith. What kind of faith should we have? The kind that Abram has. So as we, we wrap all this truth into one bundle, what do we see? Yes, he has a faithful response to God's call. He does, although it's not perfect. <laughs> it's not perfect. He didn't hear once and then just go all the way to Canaan. He had to be reminded. He is obedient, although that obedience, again, it comes and stops and starts. But what do we know about his obedience? Even though it is choppy, even though it is sometimes temporary, even though he doesn't perfectly fulfill it, it always brings glory and honor to God, and it pleases God. His obedience, although it's in stops and starts, brings glory and honor, and it pleases God. Put ourselves for just a moment, in the original audience receiving this story. This is, this is Moses writing this story to the Israelites. And think about the similarities here of Abram's story and their story. They are, have just been called out of Egypt, out of the place that they knew for 400 years, to go to a promised land that they have never seen, that they do not know about. 
God sent them on a journey. And that journey, of course, is going to be rife with stops and starts. But they have something waiting for them, the promised land. And so the call here is even through their sin, even through their doubt, they must respond the way Abram did in faith and go. And through faith, through believing, the promise is waiting for them. You see the, the connections? Now this concept that makes sense for this original audience just as easily applies to our lives. Just as easily applies to our lives. God has called Christians on a sacrificial journey. A sacrificial journey. Let me read to you Matthew 16. Not the whole chapter, just part of it. Okay, Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Listen to Jesus' words about the call on the life of the Christian. Again, Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, listen to the promise, will find it. And then he asked some rhetorical questions. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And once again, he revisits the promise for the son of man is going to come with his angels and in the glory of his father and the warning. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Christian, Christian, this is the journey of obedience that we have been called on. This is the journey. The, the follower of Christ, what are we called to do? We're called to, to, to die to self-will and embrace God's will at, at any cost. That's the call of the Christian. That seems heavy and distant, doesn't it? One author named Thielman says this, entering God's kingdom by following him entails putting oneself at odds with the values and goals of the sinful world. That's what this is talking about putting ourselves in a very difficult place. That's the call of Jesus Christ on our lives. And so we can hear from this, there are only two paths. There are only two paths in life. There is the one that's with Christ, behind Christ, following Christ. And at the end of that path is a promise, eternal life with him. That's where it leads to. Following Christ leads to life. And the other path, what is it? Going our own way. And what is that? What's the promise of that way? Eternal destruction. That's it. Those are the two paths of life. Most of us, myself included, we're living in a Haran. <laughs> we're living halfway. We've started the obedience. We've started it. But somewhere along the way, we find contentment in a place Life happens, and sometimes our following of Christ stalls out. Uh, David Platt wrote a book called Radical, and he says it this way. We're settling. I think it really uh, diagnoses well. We are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually abandoning ourselves. 
for Abram, Haran was probably nice. If you look where it is on the map, it's in modern-day Turkey. It was right by a couple of rivers. I'm sure they found lots of grass to feed their sheep. They found uh, a way to live. They found ways to, to make life comfortable and work. It wasn't God's plan, though. It wasn't God's plan. In the same way, none of us yet are fully faithful to the call of Christ in our lives. All of us, if we just took two minutes here and, and, and thought about it, it wouldn't even take two minutes. We know of at least one area of our lives where we know for a fact God's calling us to obedience and we're just not sure we want to do that. At least one. And what is the scripture then? It's this ongoing, gentle reminder of God. Like he did for Abram. Don't forget, where are we going? Go. A call, a reminder to obedience. And so God calls us to follow Christ. It's not a geographical call. It's, it's much harder than that. It's with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And, and guess what? Our lives, my life, your life, it's littered with sinful choices, sinful desires, sinful actions, sin sinful words, sinful thoughts. But there's encouragement in this. Even though that's true, even though we've stalled out halfway in life sometimes, in Christ, every attempt to follow him pleases and honors God. Do you hear this? Even though those things are true, every attempt to follow Christ honors and pleases God. Think about how this affects the view of all aspects of the Christian life. Think about this. Let's talk about praying and reading the Bible. This concept, this journey of Abram, this concept applied to the Israelites, this concept applied to us in following Christ means that we don't have to pray perfectly for hours just to please God. Praying pleases God. That's it. Praying pleases God. We don't have to finish the Bible in a year for God to say, all right, I guess you made it. Reading the word, learning from it, applying it, it pleases and honors God. You see, God's love isn't quantitatively measured by our perfection. God's love is full, it's now, we know this by his promises, and even though we falter, even though our obedience comes and starts and stops, his promise is true. Any obedience and spending time with him pleases him honors him. And even though our obedience has stops and starts, the promise remains. Let's talk about a long-standing sin, a sin that maybe has its claws in you and it's had its claws in you for a long time. We don't have to completely defeat that sin once and for all for God to finally love us or to please him. Every small victory, every resistance to temptation, every moment of repentance pleases and honors God. It's the continued journey. It's the continued journey. It's not about getting there all the way at once. It's about the continuation after the reminder. 
even doubt and belief. With all theological truth, this part of us, this truth especially is hard sometimes to believe. Part of us knows it's true. The other part of us doesn't really know how to believe it. That's true of a lot of things that are true about God. We resist the truth, sometimes even resist harder the good truths of who God is. But what? Beginning to believe it a little bit pleases and honors God. Do you see a pattern developing? As we face these truths, we have a great opportunity in these moments for life evaluation. Life evaluation, no matter our age, no matter our stage, no matter our background, no matter the sins that we have committed or the ones we're currently committing or the ones we will commit, we have a gracious and clear call from God on our lives. It's gracious, it's clear, it's ongoing. The way Paul describes it in the Colossians, it's twofold. He talks about actively putting to death our sins, throwing sin off, resisting temptation, and following on purpose Jesus Christ. It's an active, ongoing thing in every effort in that way. Every moment that we put off or we put on, it pleases and honors God. And so Abram, Stopping in Haran was not the same as making it to Canaan. You see? Stopping in Haran is not the same as making it to Canaan. And as much as that describes the Christian life, oftentimes we find ourselves content with where we're at, and that is not the same as following Christ continually. It's not the same. It's not the same as continuing to follow Jesus Christ. And so what are we called to do? What is the scripture calling us to do in all these things we've just read? We're called to first trust that God's way, this endeavor toward full obedience, that we got to trust that it is a good path. It ends in a promise. And the other half of that is this. We can actually make efforts and make strides toward increasing in full obedience, knowing that every effort, every single effort toward obedience honors and pleases God. You'll agree with me, I think, that at times, this journey, this journey called the Christian life, it's full of pitfalls, it's full of distractions, it's full of self-satisfaction that, that seems so good at the time, it's full of, of the idea that we can actually find contentment in this world. It's arduous. It's hard. The Lord's Supper, in response to that, it's our oasis, Christian. It's our oasis. The journey toward increased obedience, as long as we live and breathe, is going to remain difficult. But as long as we live and breathe, we have, we're going to need a time to stop, reevaluate, confess, repent, feed. And the Lord's Supper is that intentional stop. It's a moment of nourishment on the arduous path of the Christian life. I've been listening over and over, almost obsessively, to a uh, version of the hymn, All Who Hunger. And so listen to these words. 
All who hunger gather gladly. Holy manna is our bread. Come from wilderness and wandering. Here in truth we will be fed. You that yearn for days of fullness, all around us is our food. Taste and see the grace eternal. Taste and see that God is good. That's this moment. Stop for a moment and taste grace. Take a drink from the spigot of grace. Taste and know that God is good. He's with you. That's what this is about this morning. And so, if that is your confession as one who is in need, desperately so, and the only answer to that need is Jesus Christ, and you're on that path, and maybe that path has been easier this week than others or harder this week than others. Here we are, we are here, we profess Jesus Christ, we've been baptized, we come and we eat, and we are invited to do so. For others, either you do not believe you need help, maybe you're stuck in a haran in your life, and you're saying, no, I really am not interested in moving on. The scripture makes it clear that those are two reasons. Either Jesus isn't your Lord or you're not sure what you're going to do about that, that you would not come and eat this morning. And so we'd ask you to respond in that way. Let's take a moment. Let's pray quietly to ourselves. And then I will gather us together for a prayer of blessing before we participate in the refreshment of the Lord's Supper. Father, we are commanded, commanded to take up our cross and follow Christ. I pray that you would bless this bread and this juice or wine, bless this supper, that we, as the Valley of Vision says, may perceive the sweetness of this command. May we see in this supper the, the vileness of our sin that caused Christ's death. May we savor your sweet love of sinners. May we, by the spigot of grace, be filled up and refreshed by the promise of your gospel. Bless this meal for us in this way today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.